Uh, Pastor Lynn Howe preached a great sermon last week. If you didn't make that sermon, uh, you should listen to it. Uh, it's phenomenal. It gives the background of the need for a covering, um, the necessary blood that needs to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. Um, this morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that. I'm going to platform off of that to, to talk about this passage this morning. I'm going to give you a little bit of background. Before Jesus rides in on this donkey into the Jerusalem, he's praised as king. He's coming from Galilee, the region of Galilee. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead. And the news of that is spreading like wildfire. He is, as far as celebrities go, he is the topic of the town. The topic of the town. As he's Coming in just before he goes into Jerusalem that evening, he stops and he, he turns into to Bethany and he stays with Lazarus and his family. And all the crowd that was with Jesus and they saw what happened with Lazarus and they saw his miracles and listening to his teaching and they're all pouring into Jerusalem and what are they doing? They're telling everybody because the people that were in Jerusalem, they're wondering if Jesus is going to come because they've heard the news of Lazarus. We know that because... Man, as soon as he did it, some, some, some Jews that were there, they get right down to the Pharisees. They say, guys, everything's changed. All the miracles he did, nothing compares to this. This man was in the grave for four days. And Jesus, we saw him with our own eyes. Raise him out of the grave. He came out in his grave clothes. Lazarus, come forth. And so the Pharisees, are, they've plotted to kill him. They spread the word. We've got to tra trap him. We're going to kill him. And so he's got people that want to kill him waiting in Jerusalem. But the crowds, oh man, they are just stoked about Jesus. They are really excited. And now with all those messengers coming down, spreading the news, the city's buzzing with Christ. They want Jesus so bad. And so that next morning, he calls, tells his two disciples to go down and fetch that donkey. And so they, they get the donkey, they bring it up to him. They lay their coats on the donkey, and he begins to ride in. And this is the scene. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The large crowd that came for the feast. That's the nation. Okay? That's everyone's come down for this. Especially since they knew that Jesus was going to be there. Maybe you'd skip out this year. You felt like you did pretty good. So you didn't need to go to Passover. But Jesus was going to be there, so you were going to be there. So they took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So they recalled Later, after Christ had been raised and they received the Spirit of God, they recalled that this had been happening. So what's amazing to me is Jesus is doing this, and these guys are just, oh, I'll get the donkey, you know. We're going to get the donkey. He's going to go, like, okay, let's lay the coats on, let's go. They're hearing people crying out, Hosanna. They don't know that's fulfilled prophecy. They don't know that's fulfilled prophecy. In, the, in other Gospels, the, the Pharisees say, hey, tell these people to be quiet. And Jesus says, if they are silent, then the rocks will cry out. Did you know that Palm Sunday was a fulfillment of prophecy? That's a big deal. That's a real big deal. 
Not only was it prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9 that he come on a donkey, humble, preaching peace to the nations. But in uh, the book of Daniel chapter 9 is prophesied that 483 years exactly would be when, when the one who came to atone for our sins came to Jerusalem. And 483 years, 360 days to the day is the day that Jesus rode in to Jerusalem. So holding back was for two reasons, wasn't it? It was so that the crowds would come forth and begin to tell of him to, to get his fame as high as necessary. And it was also so that he would come down on the correct day. He needed to come down on that day to fulfill prophecy. The Messiah needed to fulfill the prophecy exactly as it was written. Because our God is sovereign. When he makes promises, he's not lying about him. He says, am I a man that I should lie? Or not tell the truth? Say something and not come to pass? So here he comes. Everyone's so excited. His disciples don't understand what's going on. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Because people are coming by wondering, well, who's this guy? You know, they didn't have Facebook back then. They couldn't just sh show a viral thread of Jesus' face. People didn't know what he looked like. And then all of a sudden you have these people throwing down palm branches and this dude on a donkey, and everybody's calling him the king. Like, well, who's that? Well, that's Jesus. He's the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done these signs. They were really excited about the power of Jesus. Really excited about it. But don't let that fool you. They wanted a revolutionary. They wanted a political leader. They wanted someone who was going to deliver them from the Romans. And they were ready to call him king. You wonder why the Romans weren't alarmed when this whole crowd was surrounding this man, calling him a king of Israel, right? Well, it's because he didn't come on a big old horse with a giant sword, a giant crown, and a, and a bunch a quiver and a, and a bow. He came on a donkey, a little tiny donkey, not even a donkey that's worth fighting with. This guy wasn't a threat. They could see that. He was really kind of a pitiful sight. You call that a king? Okay, right? We're just going to continue marching. We're going to leave that one alone. He came humble. But the crowd was really excited about what this Jesus could do. Why? I mean, what better person to lead him into battle? Think of a political leader that you could be confident about. Think about going to battle. You get shot with an arrow, and all of a sudden he just wakes you up. You pick up your sword and you go back at it again, right? Are you hungry? Okay, just give me a couple of loaves and some fishes here, right? Everybody's fed. You don't even have to provide for your army. You can travel light and swift, no problem. They were excited about Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They were believers in Jesus. They believed in him, but they were not redeemed. There are more people that believe in Jesus and are not redeemed in the ministry of Christ, than those who believe in Jesus and are redeemed. Don't be fooled. Just because somebody believes in Jesus doesn't mean they're saved. Does not mean they're saved. How can you say that? Well, the Bible describes it. In John 6, he's, he's got this whole crowd that's following him. They all love him. 
He's feeding them. They want more bread. He says, I'm going to give you some scripture instead. I'm the true bread. My flesh is true flesh. Or if my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Unless you partake of me, you, you won't have eternal life. And everybody leaves him, except for this small group of disciples again. He said, are you going to go too? What did, Jesus, what did Peter say? Where can we go? You have the words of life. We can't go anywhere. His followers were very few. And right here in the same chapter, many of the, even the, the, the Jewish leadership believed in Jesus, but they refused to confess him for fear that the Pharisees would throw them out of the synagogue. They like the cheap belief. I'll believe in Jesus secretly. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as believing in Jesus and keeping it to yourself. Those who believe in Jesus are willing to take the consequence of believing in Jesus. Even if that means cast out of fellowship with the people that they once knew. Are you afraid of that? Are you afraid of that? Losing your friends? If they were to find out that you're a follower of Jesus? Are you so ashamed? It could be you're a believer like this. You're a believer so long as it doesn't make your life uncomfortable. In John 8, Jesus is preaching, and it says that as he preached, many believed upon him by his words. And so he turned to the ones who believed. He said, he said to them, if you want to be my disciple... You, my true disciples abide in my word, and they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. And they say, we've never been enslaved to anyone, right? <laughs> what are you talking about, you know? Like, that's your deal. That's like your whole history is being enslaved by people over and over and over again. We've never been enslaved by anything. We don't want this. And they tell him he has a demon. These are the same people, the same people, it says that they believed in him. They believed in him. But it was cheap. It was belief with a motivation for self. They were all about the power of Christ. So long as it made their life, their life, my life, my identity, my stuff, better. That's why I believe in Christ. That's why they did it. But the truth is that true believers don't don't fade, don't fade away. In Hebrews 10, 38 and 39, it says that the just will live by faith. But whoever shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in them. But we are not of those who shrink back, but of those who have faith to the salvation of our souls. Real believers don't shrink back. If you know someone, you say, well, man, they had a real sincere prayer. And then five years later, you find out they're completely going against God. You say, oh, they must be backslidden. Did they lose their salvation? No. They were never saved. It says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out from us so that it may be made manifest or made known or made clear that they were not of us. They were not Christian people. It's easy to be a Christian in today's society. It's easy to show up to church but when it becomes inconvenient, I wonder how many of us will still be here. It was cheap. It was fickle. The Pharisees, in verse 19, said to one another, Look, 
You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after them. They're saying this to one another, right? They're arguing amongst themselves. We had this plan. We were going to get Jesus. And he shows up and everyone loves him. What are we supposed to do with that? Our plans have failed. Jesus has won. He's won. We're doomed. Right? They were worried that Jesus was going to come in and they were going to take away their position. Rome was going to come down and squash them. We're doomed. There's nothing we can do now. We're in for it. Our plans have failed. They weren't interested in Jesus as being a Messiah. That would take away their place. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So those came to Philip. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. I think it's interesting that it mentions that he's from Bethsaida. I think maybe it's a clue. This is just Sam. That it's a clue that these guys may know him. Because Bethsaida was near Decapolis, which would have been where there would have been a lot of Greeks, Greek-speaking people there. Sir, they say to him, we wish to see Jesus. We long to see Jesus. What an interesting thing to write within this gospel. Wow, what's the point of this? There's not even a dialogue between the Greeks and Jesus. Just that they come and they want to see Jesus. Right? I think that Andrew brought them to Jesus. This is my personal opinion. It doesn't say that they were there. It doesn't say that they wasn't there. It's not important that we know if they were there or not. But Jesus' response is important. These Greeks come. And here's the enemy, okay? Put this in perspective. The Jews want nothing more from Jesus is for him to be a political revolutionary, to defeat the Romans, and you have two Greeks coming in. You see? See what's happening here? It's, a, it's two things, I think. Two, one, one is that this is a picture of Romans 9.26, where Paul quotes out of Hosea and says, the people who are I've called not my people are going to be my people. And those in the places where it said these are not my people, they will be called the sons of God. In 11.26 where it says that, and, uh, that a partial hardening has come over Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That yes, the Gentiles are a part of what Christ is doing. These guys wanted a king that was going to defeat the Romans. But Jesus didn't want to defeat the Romans. He wanted to save the Romans. You see that? How powerful is that? He wanted to save them. His salvation, his reign, his rule was so much bigger than they could ever see. And so he responds in this way that is so against what they were thinking. At first, they think it's great. Here's why I say that. The first thing he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if he paused there, people have been like, woo! He's probably pausing because people are excited. They're like, yeah, bring on the kingdom, right? Because it says in, in, in Hebrew, I'm sorry, Hebrew, I keep saying Hebrews. Daniel, chapter 7, that the Son of Man, when he uses that word Son of Man, that's specific to Daniel, when the Son of Man is ushered into heaven, and at that point, he is given over the kingdom that, is, that goes on for, forever, a kingdom that will never end, the Davidic covenant. So this kingdom of David, the Son of Man, yes, this is what we want to hear. This is when we're going to squash the Romans. And then he says something that just makes the record screech and just go, I think, just completely silent. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Not to us. We're very excited when we hear that. Right? That's the truth. That Christ's death was necessary to bring life and salvation to the whole world. They wanted a king with a golden crown and a, a powerful scepter. And Jesus took instead a crown of thorns and a reed. But that was the king that was going to rule the world. And he has. His kingdom, his salvation, his spirit has spread across the globe. Countless people have put faith in Christ and have been saved from their sin because of what Jesus has done. This is our king. He's so much better than a political revolutionary, especially since most of us aren't Jews. Right? We could be thankful. And then he goes on and he says, this is the implication of my reign. This is the implication of my battle plan. 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He said that over and over again. He said it in Matthew 10. Whoever does not hate their mother and their father and their brothers and their sisters, whoever loves them more than me is not worthy of me. Unless you hate them, you cannot be my disciple. In chapter 16, verse 24, he says, If anyone would be my disciple, and if anyone would follow me, they must take up their cross and follow me. In Luke 9, 23, he says, You must take up your cross daily and follow me, for whoever loves his life will lose it, for whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What would a man give in exchange for his soul? He'd give it all. Jesus is worthy of it all. He's worthy of all of it. This is the implication. If anyone, verse 26, serves me, he must follow me. I don't know what your Jesus looks like. But Jesus, on his earthly ministry, was a man given over 100% to the will of his Father. And it led him to the cross. We don't live a Christian life so that we can have a peaceful, comfortable life. We live a Christian life because our hope is not in this world. It's beyond. Where I am, there will be my servant also. There will be my slave. There will be the one who's given over 100% to me. That's where I am. That's where you're going to be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What a promise. God, very God. If you serve Christ, you're going to be honored by God, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke everything to existence, who knows everything, the number of hairs on your head. This is the one who will honor you if you honor the king. If you honor the king. Well, they didn't like that very much. But a voice calls from heaven to testify. Because Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. God responds, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. 
Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people from myself. Here's the response. He said these things to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him. They knew exactly what he was saying. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And here's the question they ask. This is the moment where they stop being so alleged to Jesus Christ. Who is this Son of Man? I have a Son of Man that I want. Well, I thought we all gathered these palm leaves and were throwing them down for the ruler of, of the world who is going to defeat everyone and exalt us. Who's this Son of Man who said he's going to die? He's going to be lifted up. He's going to be defeated by the very ones we want to crush? He's going to be lifted up? That's a Roman execution. The Jews didn't execute people that way. He's going to be lifted up? Oh, no. Oh, no. That's not my Jesus. I don't think so. I don't think so. Reality set in, and they, at that point, weren't willing to die. They weren't willing to die for that king. They didn't want to die. They thought he was going to raise him from the dead. They thought they were fine. I'm fine. I'm sorry that many people present the gospel that way. Maybe that's a gospel that you adhered yourself to. Somebody said, how'd you like your life to be better? You said, sure. And they said, you know, God loves you. You say, what a coincidence. I love me. I'm my favorite person. They said, well, God loves you so much, he's giving you a free ticket to heaven. What? Cool. What do I got to do? Just say this little prayer. In you go. Here's your ticket. Come get baptized. We'll give you a certificate. And we wonder why they leave. They leave because really, honestly, when it comes down to following Christ or following the world, one's smoother than the other. One's rougher than the other. And we're going to value these things on earth more than Jesus. After all, you thought that Jesus was supposed to bless your life. You thought that he was supposed to give you everything you ever wanted. He was like your co-pilot. Yeah, come on in here. Have a seat. I'll need you. I'll talk to you when I need you, right? I'll take your advice when I want it. Jesus is never intended to be your co-pilot. Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross only places him in one position in your life, your master, your master. And you, his bondservant or his slave, giving your life completely over to him. That is the call. That's what we have to make clear as Christians, isn't it? We have to say, count the cost. And they say, what's the cost? All I got to do is say a prayer and say, no, 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 no. Salvation is free, but it'll cost you everything. Okay? There's nothing you could do to save yourself. Christ did everything that was necessary for you to be saved. But you have to understand that he doesn't accept anything less than all of it. All of it. All of your life. Every single moment, facet. I'm not talking about some kind of philosophical ideology. I'm not talking about... You know, you give him a, a nod every once in a while. I mean, every decision that you have to make in life is centered around the kingdom of God. You're his slave if you are his follower, if you are his disciple. 
that's what you are. You don't like that. You're worshiping the wrong Jesus. You fashioned him to look how you want, to dress how you want. He closes his eyes when you sin, and he's just happy that you're here in church. I'm sorry. You worship the devil. You don't worship Jesus. You worship yourself. As believers, the great hope that we have, I mean, we really try to fathom this. Christ died for your sin. We tell people that. We can even ask most Americans, ask them, why did Jesus die on the cross? They say, oh, for our sins. It's easy for our sins. They don't know what that means. That means that he died the death that you ought to die 100%. That means that you can come to God. You have no fear of death. Death in the Old Testament was something to be feared. Death in the New Testament lost its sting. It's like 1 Corinthians 15, right? Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? The power, the sting of death is sin, and the power over sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who through Jesus Christ gives us victory. Victory over death. When someone's living the Christian life and they're full of the Spirit, they're not afraid of dying. All their hopes are beyond death. This is the doorway, man. Bring it on. I want to go see Jesus. That's what I want. All this other stuff I've counted as loss. That's what Paul said. In Romans 7, 9 through 11, Paul wrote, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, we will never die again. Death no longer has any power, any dominion over us. Death. It's nothing. It was a lion. Now it's a puppy. I enjoy it. It's something I like to think about. I like to think about dying. My wife says I'm morbid. Perhaps I am. But I think it's morbidity with the a, with a right sort of motivation. You know what I mean? How do you know if you have not died to yourself? How do you know? Well, I think there's a really great question you can ask yourself. This is for you, all by yourself. You think about this. Because if you stand before the king in the throne and you don't know him, you've worshipped another Jesus, this is a really good way to see what you really, truly love. Are you ready? Here's the question. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want most? Here's another question. What do you want God to give you? Why are you here? Are you just a part of the rabble? Are you here because this makes you some kind of a better person? Hanging out with a bunch of sinners? Why are you here? Why do you worship? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you try to pray? Why do you try to do these Christian things? What do you want? What's the motivation? Is Jesus a good luck charm? Do you come to church to make your marriage better? To be a better daddy? To be a better child? Maybe God will bless you more financially if you're here. Why are you here? What do you want? You know what the believer says? 
All I want is Jesus. That's what I want most. That's why I live the life that I live. I live it for him, 100%. That's the reason I work the job that I work. That's the reason I went to the school that I went to. That's the reason I married the person I married. I did all this because I'm focused on the kingdom. I want Jesus more than anything. I want him. What's it look like to be the type of person that realizes that? What do they do? Well, they say, I, I see now that Christ demands, I'm sorry, what Christ demands. I see what Christ demands, and I look to what I want, and I abandon it to seek first your kingdom. Because all of a sudden you've realized that there's a value that's so much greater in Christ than anything that you could ever gather here or, or build up for yourself. And you say, oh boy, I'm getting rid of that. I'm willing to, to completely abandon and turn away from everything that I've ever wanted, loved. I'm ready to turn away from my very identity. I'm ready to give it all up. And you know what? If you're ready to do that, then you're ready to receive Christ. Because you've emptied yourself of who you are. And you say, I just want God. That's all I want. Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the end. He's the goal. He's what you want. Will you abandon your pursuit of your desire and pursuit Christ? This Christ, the King who came and gave it all for you. He wore a crown of thorns. He endured mocking, beating, and all the while, this amazing thing with Christ. He, it says that he despised the shame. He owned it. See, we deserved all that shame. We deserved all that punishment. And he owned it. He absorbed it. He took it for you. All of it. And he set his face like a flint for the for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And for the joy that's set before us as Christians, we endure life on this planet. We endure it. We go through it. We'll endure the temptation of sin. We'll say, God, I need your mercy. I need your help. Lord, deliver me from this appetite. Lord, I want to walk in your spirit. We strive for righteousness, for holiness, for community within the church body. We endure the suffering that comes from the world, the uncomfortability that comes from being a Christian in general. Because we're not living for this world. We're not afraid of death. Jesus said, I will build my church, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Hell can't even keep us out. You see? You see this army that Jesus was making by his own blood? You see how necessary it was that he die? When he did that, he was making a kingdom for himself. Not of this earth. Not of this earth. Not of this world. But one day, heaven's coming down. It's coming right down here. And Jesus is going to rule and he's going to reign. And we're going to be with him. Are you going to be with him? Or is your home here? Have you changed your citizenship? We don't have to worry about politics. We don't even, this is even our country, right? We're aliens here. I'm a citizen of a kingdom that can't be shaken. That's my king. 
My king wore a crown of thorns. My king's coming to rule and to reign. And I am, I am giving my allegiance completely over to him. Have you done that? Do you know that Jesus? Because that is Jesus. He demands everything. And he's worth everything. He's worth so much more. As Christians, we don't fear death. What an army. One that doesn't fear death. That's what they wanted from Jesus, wasn't it? To defeat the Romans. To be an army that wasn't afraid of death. Well, Jesus pulled the stinger out of it for us. We don't have to be afraid. And when we have loved ones who know the Lord, who've gone on before us, they just got lucky enough to go through the door before we did. And we're excited when we get to go through that door. Is that you? Or are there still fancies of this world that you refuse to let go of? Sin that you enjoy more than Christ. Christ is not pleased with you. And he will judge you. Unless you receive his mercy now. If you understand that about Christ, come and trade it all in. Come, throw it all down. Empty yourself and receive Christ. And you can be like Paul, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live for the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power. And Lord, thank you for being our king who was better than a king of Israel. You are better than someone who can make our life on earth better. You have set us free from sin. You have unlocked for us what is unbreakable on our own flesh. And that is you have given us access to the Holy of Holies. Lord, we can walk boldly into the throne of grace and speak to the Father. You have done that. You are a mighty, powerful king. I ask, Father, that you give us the strength as believers. Lord, when things spring up in our life that would take our affection away from you and even delude us into thinking that we could pray for those things, and if we got those things, then we could worship you better. Lord, focus us. Help us to remember that fellowship with you, it's worth it all. We can count all things as rubbish compared to knowing you. We can count all things as loss. We can suffer the loss of all things so that we can gain Christ. You are our treasure, O oh God. We love you. We ask that your spirit continue to sanctify us as believers. And for those who are not saved, God, I ask that you, even now, you beckon sinners to your cross. In Jesus' name, amen.